Well, hey, students, it's uh, good to be with you again. Uh, here's our second week of gathering together via video to study God's Word. And so if you would, join me in finding your Bibles and turning to Exodus chapter 19. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus, and we've seen uh, God deliver His people Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, out of certain death, and bring them into life. Today, we're going to see that God not only draws Israel out of Egypt, but He draws them into Himself. And we're going to see this explicitly today in chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Exodus as we get to Mount Sinai and we hear the word of the Lord given to Israel. It's here today that we will see Israel receive the Ten Commandments, the cornerstone of the law of Moses. And these are rules of life for God's people. It's how they ought to live in the world. And we must repeat the order, right? We, we must remember the order that God gives us when we read his word. First, God chooses and saves a people for himself, right? That's the first thing. And then he gives them commands to follow, right? So he saves people first and then gives them commands to follow, right? Followers of Yahweh, followers of the Lord, do not obey to be saved, right? I'm gonna say that again. Followers of God don't obey in order to be saved. Rather, they are saved so that they might obey. That's, that's the big picture that I want us to get that we need to make sure that we remember, right? Because it's easy for us to think, I've got to do, I've got to earn, I've got to achieve in order to receive salvation, life, redemption, that sort of thing. But no, God visits us with his grace first and foremost, and then gives us good commands to follow. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to see kind of in three big pictures the things of God as, as he reveals himself and as he commands to his people, right? So first, I want us to see the invitation of God. And the invitation that God gives is to gather as his people, right? God calls out to Israel to say, come to me, gather and be my people. So let's pick it up, Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's just pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are delighted to be able to come together in this less than ideal way, but still have your word before us and still be able to hear your truth by the power of your spirit as we read the scriptures and have our eyes and our hearts illuminated to understand and behold your truth and your glory. I pray that this time together would be fruitful, that you would use it to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so notice that God is starting things off by reminding Moses and the people of Israel 
what has already happened, right? He says, look, I have redeemed you. I have borne you up on eagle's wings and delivered you out of slavery, delivered you out of Egypt and brought you to me, right? Salvation has already taken place for the people of Israel. But now there will be a word to follow, right? A command to obey. If Israel will follow God's commands, they will enjoy blessing and fellowship, protection, and more. In a word, they will get to enjoy communion with God. This is massive for us as Christians. So let's just take a minute to think through this, all right? As believers, as followers of Jesus, right? As, as Christians, you and I get to enjoy what we call union with Christ. This is the truth that you and I are tethered together to Christ, that he gives us his righteousness, right? When, when God the Father sees us, he sees the righteousness of his Son on us, right? We get to enjoy this state of being united to God, right? That's union with Christ. That's static, right? It does not change. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, right? What can separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing can, right? So your union with Christ is static. It stays the same. It is unchanging. You can't harm it. You can't destroy it. You can't lose it, all right? But as believers, we also have communion with Christ. We get to enjoy fellowship with God. And this, unlike union with Christ, is dynamic. It can change. It can be strong or weak. It can be uh, clear or it can be blurry. And you and I as believers, sometimes we confuse union and communion. We think that if we sin or if we have um, problems in our life or struggles in our family or things like that, that we're somehow jeopardizing our union with Christ. That's not true. It will never be true, right? But what we are doing when we fall, find ourselves in unrepentant sin or when we find ourselves not looking at the Lord, not focusing on his word, not obeying his commands, we are causing our communion with God to suffer, right? The, the Bible talks about how our sins grieve the Holy Spirit and that we can actually quench the Holy Spirit when we sin. That's communion, not union, right? Our, our, our state before God remains the same because Jesus' perfect work was given to us for us and we cannot do anything to add or take away from it. But when we sin, when we disobey, our communion with God suffers, but the opposite is also true, right? If we obey God's word, if we live in light of his love for us, right? If we follow after him, if we learn more about him in his word, as we're obeying his commandments, our communion with God will grow and we will get to enjoy greater fellowship, greater peace, greater satisfaction, greater relationship with our God in heaven. That's what Moses is going to tell the people of Israel. That's what God wants to tell his people. If you will obey me, my chosen redeemed people, you will enjoy communion with me. So Moses calls the people to prepare to meet God in a unique way. We won't read the verses later on in chapter 19, but long story short, God is going to come down onto Mount Sinai and meet with Israel. In a very real sense, they will come face to face with their maker. Now Israel seems to be ready, right? It says in verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. The people of Israel are ready to meet God. They're ready to hear his voice. <clears throat> and Moses says, when the trumpet blasts on the third day, that's when you're supposed to come up on the mountain. So three days from now, you're going to hear a trumpet blast, and that's the summons to come be with God, to come gather as his people. 
Now notice here in the first couple of verses of chapter 19, we saw that Israel is going to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? They're to live in that communion with God that we talked about earlier and reflect his holiness and his glory to the ends of the earth. Right? We're, we, as well as Christians, are supposed to live this way. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says to Christians, he says to the church, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now we as Christians are constantly to live in what uh, history has called Coram Deo. And that's just two Latin words that means the face of God. You and I as Christians are to live our lives before the face of God. So the question in this first section for this morning is this. You may know that you have union with God, but do you enjoy communion with God? Do you enjoy fellowship with your creator? Do you have an awareness of his presence in your life? That's what Moses and the Lord wants for Israel, and that's what we want for you. That's what I want for you, that you would know and trust and experience God's power and his presence in your life. Well, we saw first that the invitation God gives is to gather as his people. But next, as we move on throughout chapter 19, we see the revelation of God, and that is to behold his glory, right? The revelation of God is to behold his glory. Now, let's envision the scene. Israel is encamped outside Mount Sinai, and for two solid days, they have been watching and waiting and preparing to meet God. They've been meditating on all of the things that he's done in their life in these last few weeks and months. They've been warned that if they go up to the mountain too soon, if they go before that trumpet blast sounds, they will be put to death. They don't want to get ahead of God. So all of these emotions are probably filling the hearts and minds of Israel. Things like anticipation and excitement and wonder and, and all of these things and more filled their hearts and minds as the people of God as they waited. So now let's read, starting in verse 16, what happens next. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Let's just, let's just stop there. Can you imagine this scene? Like, can you imagine waking up the morning of that third day, and thunder, and lightning, and fire, and smoke, and what seems like earthquakes just taking over the mountain? It's hard to describe. It's hard to imagine all of these things falling at one point. And Israel stood stunned. They were terrified. And Moses goes up before the people and speaks to God. 
<clears throat> we won't read this, but we, we read that Moses goes up the mountain. He, he speaks to the Lord. The Lord answers in thunder. And so while all of the rest of Israel stays at the foot of the mountain, Moses goes up. And God tells Moses to go back to get Aaron, his brother, the priest, and then come back up to hear more of the message. But remember, while, while this is happening, while Moses goes up to meet God on the mountain, Israel is still standing at the foot of the mountain. And they're trembling. They're terrified. Why? It's because they've beheld God in a fresh, clear way. They've seen and heard his power and his glory. I think of Isaiah 6, right? It's a well-known text that we know. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, right? Isaiah sees God in his throne and he's terrified. Or, or even Matthew 17, right? The transfiguration where Peter, James, and John go up the mountain to meet with Jesus and Jesus transforms in front of them into his glorified state. And what do they do? They fall on their face in fear. So over and over and over, it seems that the response of sinful men is not casual excitement, right? It's not happiness. It's not um, being nonchalant. It's not, it's not no big deal, right? When, when sinful men and women see God for who he is, their response is fear. It's terror. When people see God clearly, they immediately see themselves clearly as well. God is holy and we are not. God is powerful and we are weak. God is the creator and we are creatures. Getting a true view of God will eliminate the lies that we believe about ourselves, about the world, and about him. When you and I behold the face of God, when we see God clearly for who he is, it will cause us to know the truth. Why? Because the Lord is true. He is the author of all true things. Now, remember earlier I said that you and I should live our lives Coram Deo. We should live our lives before the face of God. Now, here's a very real insight into that. As you and I live, we will be inundated over and over again by the world, by our flesh, by the culture, by other things, by other voices. We will be inundated with half-truths and straight-up lies about many, many things. But if you and I can situate our lives before God, right? if you and I can walk in faith, if we can live out our lives before the Lord himself, constantly living in light of his truth, we will be able to discern truth from error. We will be awakened out of a dream that the world around us seems to be living in, thinking that they can save themselves, that they're good enough to earn heaven, that this world may be all that there really is, so that they should just run after pleasures, or that they believe that this world can actually satisfy their desires. And here's the reality, students, all of us, believe lies, right? All of us believe things about God. We believe things about ourselves. We believe things about the world. They're just not true. And so we need to inundate ourselves with the truth. We need to inundate ourselves with the Lord so that we can actually learn to understand what is true and what is not. So the question is, have you seen God? Israel saw God. They saw his power and his glory in nature. They saw him on the mountaintop 
They heard his voice in the thunder. They saw God. Have you? Have you seen God? Not as you think he might be, right? Not as you've imagined him to be, not as the world may say that he is, but have you seen God as he has revealed himself to be? Well, how do we see him? How do we know that the God that we are looking at is real, is true, is the actual God that we're reading about? How do we know that we're not believing lies about who God is? Well, the the simple answer is we need to look for God where he has revealed himself to us. And he has revealed himself to us most clearly in the Bible. He's revealed himself most clearly in his own word. So, This is why we study the Bible, right? This this is why you and I, week in and week out, open up the Bible, read it, and explain and understand what it says. Because we want to see God. We want to have a vision of Him that's true, that's real, that's right. It's why all of us should be growing as theologians, as people who know God. Theology is just the study of God. And so to be a theologian is to, is to be one who studies who God is. All of us are theologians and we all ought to be growing as theologians, right? Not so that we can just have knowledge in our head, not so that we have a system of doctrine or theology that we can say we know or that we can show ourselves to be greater about, but no, we, we want to be theologians. We want to see God rightly so that we can know him And we can live in light of his truth so that we can live rightly before the face of God. Well, thirdly and finally, we don't just want to hear the invitation that God gives to gather as his people. We don't want to just see the revelation of God and behold his glory. No, we want to hear the communication of God. And that is to obey his commandments. To obey his commandments. We find in Exodus chapter 20, probably one of the most popular, well-known passages of the Bible, and that is the Ten Commandments. As Moses goes back down to the people of God, remember, Israel's on the foot of the mountain, Moses has gone up, and now he's coming back down to get Aaron. As Moses is down with the people of Israel, God speaks for everyone to hear. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now let's just, let's just stop there, because Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, is just an introduction to what we're going to see as the Ten Commandments. But it's important that we see this introduction for what it is. God speaks first to remind Israel who he is and who they are. They have to know who is God and who are they before they hear this commandment, before they hear these laws. Because if they forget who they are, or if they forget who God is, they could misunderstand what this law is really for. So God starts off by saying these truths, things like, I am the Lord, your God, and I have saved you. I have brought you out of slavery in Egypt. So whatever I'm going to say now, you need to remember that I am your God and I have redeemed you. I'm not giving you these laws, these commandments, so that you might be my people. You are my people. But this is how you ought to live as a saved, redeemed, chosen nation. 
So we could spend weeks and weeks and months and months on just this section of the Bible. There's so much in the Ten Commandments for us to understand. There's so much there for us to tease out that we might apply to our own lives. So we're just going to kind of fly through it, but, but don't, don't underestimate the importance of the Ten Commandments. And I would encourage you, maybe sometime this week or later on, spend some time walking through these Ten Commandments and think about your own life and how those commandments might apply to you specifically. So let's go through them. Starting in verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. All right, this is simple. This starts at the top, right? God says, I am your God and there are no other ones. I'm not going to compete for your allegiance. I'm not going to compete for your worship. I am the Lord. And so when you and I commit idolatry, when we put something above God in our own lives, we are breaking the first commandment. All right, second, verse four through six, he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, who love me and keep my commandments." So what's God saying here? In verses four through six, the second commandment is that you and I do not need to create anything in order to worship God on our own terms, right? We don't create graven images. We don't create idols to worship as though we are worshiping God. The big idea here of this second commandment is that God reveals to you and to me how he wants to be worshiped. And we might think that we have some good ideas about how we want to worship God, but God has given us the right ways to do that. Later on in the text, we hear about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they offer what's called strange fire to the Lord. It's, it's this kind of worship through something mystical, something different, something that God has not authorized, and it leads to their death. And so the point of the second commandment for you and me to remember is that God has shown us how he wants us to worship him. All right, third commandment, verse 7. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, oftentimes you just, you and I read this and we think, okay, I just shouldn't say God's name flippantly. And that's true. That, that's totally right, but it's not completely right, okay? We ought not to speak vainly or worthlessly about God. So that means, yes, that we don't use his name flippantly. It means that we don't use his name casually, but it also means that we don't speak about him untruthfully. Right? You and I are commanded never to say anything to anyone or to believe things about God that are not true. That would be using his name in vain. Instead, as followers of God, we're to promote the truth about who God is, not things that are not true. All right, fourth commandment, starting in verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, so the fourth commandment is an invitation for you and for me to rest. 
It's an invitation for us to recognize that you and I ultimately aren't the uh, kings of our schedules. No, God has given you and me a rhythm in which to live. Now, as Christians, there's some controversy here, right? Because we recognize the book of Hebrews telling us that it's not just a day that is the Sabbath. No, we find our Sabbath rest in Christ. We find our Sabbath rest in Jesus, the one who has worked on our behalf, right? And now we don't stop and rest and uh, not do anything on Saturday, which would have been the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day for the people of Israel. But instead, we now worship on the Lord's day, right? Sunday, the first day of the week. And that shift happens because of Jesus, right? The day that Jesus resurrects is the first day of the week, almost signifying a new creation, that a new seven days has begun, not just like creation in Genesis chapter one, but a new creation. So there's some controversy here about how we ought to apply this fourth commandment as Christians, but we all agree that Sunday, the Lord's day, is a day unlike other days. It's a special day reserved for worship, reserved for rest, reserved for us to look forward to that new creation when we will enjoy our rest forever. All right, so the first four commandments, if you think about it, have what we would understand as a a vertical sense, right? Those first four commandments help us to understand how we as followers of God relate to God. Now, the next six commandments are going to be more horizontal in nature. They're going to show us how we ought to live with one another, how we ought to live with the people around us. So let's start in verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, what this commandment means simply is that we're to honor our parents. We're to honor those whom God has given to us as our authority, right? God gives children to parents so that they might love them and nurture them and grow them up into maturity. But he gives them authority so that they might lead them well. And children are given the responsibility to obey their parents, to honor their parents, to follow their lead that God has given to them. Now, more broadly, this command means that you and I ought to submit to the authorities that God has put in our life. Now, that might be parents, that might be a teacher, that might be a boss. I mean, there are many different realms in which you and I live under authority. But what this commandment shows us is that authority is not a bad thing. It's not a result of the fall. No, instead, authority is a good thing. Authority reminds us that we are not God and that he puts people over us that we can submit to as we submit to him. Now, that does not mean that we obey authority no matter what, right? There are obviously ways in which we would disobey a lower authority in order to obey God. So let's say a boss asks you to lie on something that you're working on in order to keep him and his business secure. Well, that would be something that you would not have to obey, that you shouldn't obey, right? Because that's leading you to sin. That's leading you to bear false witness. And so you must obey God rather than men, right? Even in this, in this time, this is a good example, right? We're not meeting today. And the reason why we're not meeting today, among other things, is that the government has encouraged us, has told us that groups and gatherings ought not to meet right now for the safety of our community. Well, we want to obey that authority, right? We've been put into submission by the fact that we're citizens of a community. 
And the government is given to us by God to promote welfare and to restrain evil. And so this, as frustrating as it is, as less than ideal as it is for us not to gather physically together, how we miss that so much, it's not bad. It's not wrong for us to obey those authorities that God has given us for our good. All right, so that's honor your father and mother. We could go way down that line if we wanted to, but let's keep going. Verse 13 says, you shall not murder. No murder, right? Murder is an important word. It's not saying you don't kill. It's not saying that you don't ever take the life. It says that you never murder. So that means for you and me, that we never take the life of another vindictively or sinfully or viciously. And we don't live with hatred towards others either, right? Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you hate someone in your heart, that you've already committed murder against them in your heart. So we don't live with hate and we don't act on that hate murderously. Now, obviously, there, we could get into all kinds of conversations about well, what about the military? What about war? And what about self-defense? And there are many, many good conversations. If you have questions about that, feel free to message me, ask me. We'll talk about it more. But specifically, what this verse is talking about is murder, that we take the life of another person in our own hands to do with what we want. That's not our job. That's the Lord's job. So we don't murder. Verse 14, next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Students, you and I have been commanded by God to not commit adultery. Now, you might think that because you're not married, you can't commit adultery. But the, the, the big idea that God is getting at in this commandment is that you and I, as followers of God, ought to never break covenant commitments. And we ought to never sin against our body. Right, that's what Paul talks about. When we commit sexual immorality, we're actually sinning against our own bodies. So we don't sin against our bodies. We don't commit adultery. We don't fall into sexual immorality, nor do we entice or tempt others to do the same. Right? On the flip side of this commandment, we ought to strive to live pure and holy lives. We guard our eyes and we guard our minds and we guard our hearts from lust, from sinful desires from inordinate, twisted desires so that we may not commit adultery against God. Oftentimes in the Bible, idolatry, following after false gods, is is, uh, described as adultery. It's described as being unfaithful to God. We never want to be unfaithful to God, either in our idolatry towards other things or in our breaking of covenant commitments to one another. So don't commit adultery, God says. Verse 15 you shall not steal. You shall not steal, right? You don't take what's not yours. And that's not just material wealth, right? So obviously we think about stealing as like, I'm going to go to the store and uh, rob someone and take all their money. Or I'm going to go to a car dealership and steal a car. We think about material goods. We think about wealth. We think about money. when We think about stealing. But it's more than that, right? You can steal credit. You can steal someone's recognition. You can steal someone's character. When you plagiarize, when you take someone's words that aren't yours, you're stealing their intellect, you're stealing their research, you're stealing their authority, you're stealing their credibility. So when we steal, what we're doing is we're taking advantage of someone or something because we think we're better, stronger, more deserving, and more. On the flip side, not only do we not steal, 
but we ought to promote justice to those who are in need. So oftentimes you'll hear Jesus say things like, uh, give to the one who's, who's needy. If you tell someone who needs a cloak, well, hey, just be well with you. That's, that's fine. Hope you do better uh, later. Hope somebody helps you out. And you have the means to help them. That's sin. You shouldn't do that. No, if you see someone in need and you have the means to help them, well, by God's grace and being led by the Holy Spirit, you ought to help them. That, that's, that's actually fulfilling this commandment. You ought not to steal. Also means you ought to promote justice. You ought to promote what's right and what's needed. All right, next, verse 17. It says, uh, or verse 16 rather, uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Students, you and I are commanded by God never to destroy the character of another person. You're commanded by God not to gossip, not to spread rumors, not to talk ill of someone behind their back, not to talk ill of someone for your own gain or for your own pleasure. Right? We're commanded right here in the Bible not to stretch the truth in order to make a point at someone's expense. We don't bear false witness against our neighbor. Now notice, God uses the word neighbor here, not just brother. So uh, as Christians, we, we recognize that we have family, like a physical family, like mom, dad, brother, sister. And then we have spiritual family. So you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But we also have neighbors. We also have those who may be outside the household of faith, outside Christianity, but we still live among, right? And Jesus has this wonderful parable of the Good Samaritan that shows us everyone is our neighbor, Right? Part of what it means to be made in God's image is that we live in community, that we live in relationship, and all of us are surrounded by our neighbors. So we don't get to decide who we speak ill about, who we take character away from, who we lie and bear false witness against, because no one is available according to this commandment. All of us are to not bear false witness against our neighbors. So it's not just cutting down that we bear false witness. We also could puff up, right? So you and I could gossip or spread rumors, and that would be bearing false witness against our neighbor. But you also could flatter someone in order to get something out of them, right? You could puff them up. You could say nice things that are not really true about that person, but you're encouraging them or saying nice things that may not be true, but you want something out of it, right? That's flattery, and that's also bearing false witness against your neighbor, So we don't cut down and we don't puff up. Instead, as followers of God, we speak the truth just as God speaks the truth. All right, last commandment, 10th commandment, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Students, you and I in the 10th commandment are forbidden from allowing our desires for things that we don't have to govern and dictate our relationship to other people, right? So you may have a friend who has uh, an opportunity or a house or a car or a job or a a piece of technology or uh, a spot in the band or a spot on the sports team that you like or you want to be in. And you may fixate on those things that they have and you don't have, If we're not careful, 
our sinful hearts will start to twist that relationship to where your lack and your desire for what they have will come to control and govern that relationship. This is a root sin that will lead to all sorts of horrors in our life if we don't put it to death. Students, you and I do not use people. Instead, we love people. So when we covet, actually what we're doing is we're confessing to God. God, you have not given me what I deserve. God, you have done wrong by me by giving to that person what I think I deserve. So what's going to happen? That coveting will lead to all kinds of sins, right? It's led to murder. It's led to adultery. It's led to bearing false witness. It's led to stealing. It's led to all of these other kinds of sins. Instead, as followers of God, we don't covet. We practice contentment, right? We practice contentment. Think about Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. In other words, The Lord is my shepherd. He's my leader. He's my God. He's the one who provides for me. So I have all that I need. If I really believe that God is in control of my life, if I really believe that he is my shepherd, that he loves me and he cares for me, then I have all that I need. So not only when we practice contentment, we can be free of coveting, but actually when we practice contentment, we can celebrate, like actually celebrate when God decides to bless people who are not you. So so here's what this looks like. Uh, Say a good friend of yours gets that scholarship that you wanted. Well, if you're practicing contentment, you can actually celebrate with them. You can actually celebrate what God is doing in their life. Now, you may be sad that you didn't get that scholarship, and that's, that's okay, but you can actually celebrate and rejoice with that person that God has blessed them in that way. And that can be with a job, that can be with a car, that can be with any kind of opportunity. When we practice contentment, when we don't covet, we can actually enjoy God's blessing in the lives of other people around us, not just our own blessings in our own life. So here, here's a quick word. We've, we've kind of flown through these Ten Commandments, and you may think, goodness, this is a burden. you may think, oh, this is so heavy. There's so many things to follow. There's so many things to do. There's so many things to not do. But Jesus says to you and me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So so students, don't see the Ten Commandments as chains that that hold you down and confine you against your will. The, The Ten Commandments are not to burden you. Instead, say that we're in a desert, right? Surrounded by sand, difficult to walk, difficult to travel. Instead, the Ten Commandments are like a paved road in that desert that allows you to run at full speed. The Ten Commandments actually shows you the way in which you can live in freedom. Now, what happens is because of our sinful hearts and because of our sinful eyes and our sinful minds, we think that joy and satisfaction and pleasure and delight are going to be found in trying to run in the sand. And it's never going to happen. Instead, when we walk on this path that God has paved for us in his law, we will enjoy the kind of freedom that he's provided for us. God tells you and me that if we obey his word, if we run on that path, blessing will follow. 
we will experience not just that union with God, but communion with him. So last, I just want to read this conclusion to you. Uh, Israel, remember, is at the foot of the mountain. Moses is with Israel. They're hearing these 10 commandments. And it says in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see what the reaction is of Israel? Israel has heard the word of the Lord. They've heard the truth and their response is fear and trembling. Why? Because they know in this moment that they are not worthy to approach God. They know when they hear these rules, when they hear these commands, they immediately are convicted that they have already broken these commands. They have already fallen short of the commands that God is giving to Israel. And they don't understand yet that God has already made a way for them to draw near to him. All they see is God's law and their failure. So Moses tells them in this text not to fear, but instead obey God to remember who they are and who God is, right? Moses then goes into the darkness. Moses then goes up the mountain near to God on their behalf. Remember, all of Israel was supposed to go up on the mountain. But because of their fear, they drew back. So instead, Moses obeys on their behalf and goes up the mountain for them. Students, you might hear this message today and consider the gravity of God's holiness and his power and his might You might be considering the the bar that God sets with the Ten Commandments. And you, like the people of Israel, are so saturated with your own failure. All you can see in front of you is your lack of obedience. All you can see before you is your own sin, your own failure, your own inadequacy, your ability to never measure up. And students, that's true. It's true that when you and I see God for who he is, we are immediately, immediately aware of our lack, of our need, of our weakness, of our sin. And when we see the Ten Commandments, we immediately, if we're honest with ourselves, we immediately recognize our own failures to meet even one of those laws. But do not leave this video, do not leave this message without knowing that God gives us his inspired word to be like a mirror, right? So what do you do with mirror? You look into the mirror and you see yourself. And in the same way, when you and I read the Bible, it will show us our true selves in light of who God is. Now remember, We don't need to believe things about ourselves, about the world, or about God that are not true. We need to know what's real. We need to know what's true. And so when you and I read the Bible, when you and I read the law, we see ourselves as we ought to see ourselves. 
not as good, not as good enough, not as pretty great, but as sinful. But God doesn't just give us his inspired word. He also gives us his incarnate word. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to obey all of those commands on your behalf and mine. So now, like the people of Israel, we can come to God. He's drawing us into himself. You and I can come to God through Christ to live as his chosen people. You and I can walk in obedience to these commands, not as a burden, not as chains, but as a joyful response. Students, that's the good news of the gospel, that you and I don't measure up. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has lived a perfect life. He never stepped off of that path of the law, and he ran directly into full communion with God for us. And now he offers to you and to me his obedience, his righteousness, his standing before God by grace. He saves us by grace, just like God saving Israel out of Egypt by his grace and his mercy and his power. The gospel proclaims to you and me that God is doing the same with us. He offers us by his grace, by his mercy and by his power, not yours, not mine, we can be saved from our sins and be set on this path to walk in freedom, to run in freedom towards not just union with God, but communion with him. That's what we can have today. That's what we can have as we consider this passage and consider the gospel. So don't see the Ten Commandments as a burden. See the Ten Commandments as a pathway to joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. And Lord, sometimes it's difficult to read your word and to be exposed by it. Oftentimes we read the scriptures and we're made aware by your spirit of sins in our life that need to be dealt with. We're made aware of lies that we might believe about ourselves, about you, and about the world. God, I pray that you would help us to see those are good gifts that you give to us. So God, we thank you for the Ten Commandments. We thank you for giving us your commands so that as followers of Jesus, we can follow them, obey them, and find communion, fellowship, joy, and relationship with you. God, we thank you that our union with you is not based on our obedience. It's based on your perfect obedience. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that our students can do to change their standing with you once they become a Christian. But Lord, I pray that you would fire us up, that you would fuel our hearts and fill us with passion to long for and strive for obedience so that we might enjoy communion with you. That we might study your word so that we know who you are more clearly so that we can enjoy greater communion with you. God, we want to learn and know you so that we might love you and be loved by you. We pray that you would do that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.